we are loved. You are loved. You are deeply, deeply loved. You may not feel loved this morning. You may not feel worthy of love this morning. But I want you to hear these words. You are loved. You may have walked in today with a great deal of pain. You may be sitting there this morning full of disappointment with God. You might have come in through these doors with anger in your heart or doubt about what God's doing in your life. You may have come in with pain or be dealing with depression. You may have come shattered by the events of 10 days ago. Whoever you are, whatever you've walked in with today, hear these words. You are loved. You are loved more than you will ever comprehend. That's what we're told in the Bible. The best known verse in Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John went on and said, For God did not send his his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You and I are part of that world that Jesus came for. You and I are part of that world that God loves. You and I are deeply loved. But there's more. Because while it's true that God generally loves all of humanity, he in particular loves those who are his children. And so if you've trusted in Christ, if you have committed your life to Jesus at some point, you are not just generally loved by God, you are particularly loved by God in Christ. And so John, the same author, writing in one of his letters that we call 1 John, said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. So while God loves the world in general, God also and particularly and eternally loves those who have been adopted as his daughters and his sons. We are loved. Let me unpack that for you for a little bit. The Bible tells us that we've been chosen in love. That God has handpicked us. It tells us that we've been adopted as his children. His daughters, his sons, and loved by him forever as our Father. Tells us that we have been freely forgiven. Everything we have ever done has been taken care of by Jesus at the cross. The Bible tells us that we've been exalted with Christ, that as he now sits reigning at the Father's right hand, God sees each of us with him 
ruling with him. We have been saved, given eternal life utterly and completely by grace. We've been united together as his family, not just reconciled to God, but reconciled to each other in the church. And we have been purposed, given an eternal, lifelong purpose to glorify and honour him. That list that I've just given you is basically a summary of what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. I've just summarized Ephesians 1 to 3 in about two minutes in seven phrases. And what Ephesians 1 to 3, what these phrases, these statements of truth about you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, what they are screaming to us is simply this We are loved in Christ. We are loved. Whether we feel close to God today or not, whether we come full of faith or struggling with doubt, whether we come with hearts full of love and worship or whether we come with anger and frustration with God, it doesn't matter. We are loved in Christ. Today we have communion on the tables here and in a minute we're going to take communion together as a celebration of God's love. But to prepare our hearts for that, I want you to listen to the words of Ephesians. I've asked a couple of the people in our church just to read some excerpts from the first three chapters of Ephesians. So read the words on the screen or close your eyes, but listen to God's word tell you again and again today just how much you're loved. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness, to us in Christ Jesus. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We are loved. Paul just did that magnificent description so that you and I would hear we are loved in Christ. We are deeply loved. And we are loved not because we are worthy of that love, and we are not loved because we've earned that love. We are loved in Christ. In other words, I am loved by God because Jesus has earned that. Because Jesus is worthy. Because I'm with Jesus, I'm loved. But it's not just that I am loved in Christ, it's that we are loved in Christ. In the second half of those passages that Paul writes, in the second half of this opening to Ephesians 1-3, to he talks not only about the fact that God has saved each of us individually, but he has put us together in this wonderful new entity called the church. And through the church, he is displaying his wisdom to the world and to the spiritual beings that we can't even see. And he is glorifying himself in the church. And it's not just that I am loved. It's that we, together as his church, are loved. The band is going to come back up now. And they are going to just lead us in a couple of songs. I'm going to ask you to stay seated today. Normally, the way we do communion is that we invite you to come forward to the table and take the communion elements in your own time, but we're going to do it a little differently today. What we're going to do is actually pass the communion elements out to you. And so the invitation is for us not to take communion as individuals, but to share it together. Part of the idea of communion, part of the word communion, is the word common. That we do this together. And so today, as we sit and as we sing or as we listen to these words, some of the team are just going to pass out the bread and then the juice. And I want to invite you to do two things. I want to invite you to enjoy taking communion with the people alongside you. To deliberately hand the bread and hand the juice to the person next to you. Or to receive that, recognizing that we are together part of the church and we together are loved. And I also want to invite you to take communion today as a reminder 
of how much God loves you. So as you receive the the bread and receive the juice, I want to invite you to receive it in a spirit of thanking Christ and being reminded again just how deeply you're loved. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for bread and juice, very simple emblems that once again are there to remind us how much we're loved. And as we take the bread and the juice now, as we pass it to each other as members of your church, your family, and as together we take these elements, as we meditate on these songs and think about your love, would you help us to once again be in awe of how deep and how wide and how high is your love for us in Christ.
one of us. Lord, a love that is just so much more than we could ever comprehend or understand. But we thank you this morning that you love us. Lord, and we just accept that love this morning with grateful, grateful hearts. We are so thankful for what you have done. You have conquered sin. You've conquered death. You've given us hope. We praise you this morning. Father's arms are 
sing that again. I want a Savior. And I want a Savior. Isn't He wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. And bow down before Him. For He series that we're calling Summit Journey, looking at this new discipleship strategy that we've been unfolding about how to become intentionally more and more like Jesus. And so the key question we've been thinking about over these last number of weeks is how am I planning as a follower of Jesus, as a recipient of his love, how am I planning to intentionally become more and more like him this year? And so we're inviting each of us to think through a plan for our lives based on four further key questions. Why do I want to grow? Where am I going to grow? Who am I going to grow with? And how am I going to do that? And so we we kick this off by looking over a couple of Sundays at the why question, what I call gospel-driven growth, and then the who question, intentional community. And then we're taking seven Sundays to think through the where, and we're walking through seven key areas of life in which God wants us to grow and become more and more like Jesus. So we've done three of them so far. We've looked at Christ-like character and a biblical mindset, and then last week Steve did a great job of walking through what it means to live a life of heartfelt prayer and worship. I I watched that online this week, and Steve just did a great job. And so today we come to the fourth trait of, of what it looks like to be a growing disciple of Jesus, to look more and more like Jesus, and it's what I'm calling healthy relationships healthy relationships. And the key question, we're kind of phrasing the key question similarly each week, but the key question for this week is this, to what extent do I allow God's unconditional love for me to impact my relationship with others, especially within God's family and my family? If you're um, following or using the, the little guidebook we've produced for Summer Journey, I've tweaked this question just slightly from what's in that book. But in light of God's love for me, how do I allow that to impact my relationships, particularly uh, my relationships within God's family, the church, and within my immediate family? In 2000, a movie was released entitled Pay It Forward. don't know how many of you remember that, but it's a story about a little kid called Trevor who comes up with a social studies project of, um, of, of a way to change the world or impact the world, and he comes up with this plan that's 
are shown on the blackboard then where he is going to do an act of kindness for three other people that, that they wouldn't be able to do on their own, but rather than then paying him back, he would encourage those three people to uh, further do something for three other people and, and pay it forward, which is the, the sense of the name. Um, don't know how many of you remember it. It's kind of a bit of a corny movie in some ways, just quietly. Uh, sorry if you really loved it. My apologies. It wasn't probably loving of me to say that. But anyway, um, I didn't particularly enjoy the movie but I really like the concept. And I actually think the concept is immensely biblical because I think that's exactly how God's love is meant to operate in our lives, that we're meant to pay it forward, that God has deeply and richly and continues to deeply and richly love us in Christ. Uh, yesterday, uh, some of us had the privilege of attending Cassie Hand's wedding. Cassie was another founding member, one of the key leaders that launched our Summit Church, and yesterday she married Lloyd Vivian, and we farewelled her last week because she's going to be going to Lloyd's church. But yesterday in their service, this, these are the verses that were read uh, during that service, from again from 1 John, this time chapter 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. In other words, this is the very definition of love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is God's love. God's love didn't wait for us to love him first, because we didn't. Paul will say in Romans, we were enemies of God. We turned our back on him, but God so loved us, he sent Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. John goes on to write, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, what John says is that we're meant to pay it forward. That we're meant to live in light of this incredible love that God has for us. And we're then meant to pay that love forward into our relationships with others, but especially with those closest to us. That's essentially what Paul's letter to the Ephesians was all about. I explored really briefly with you the first half of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 to 3, those amazing words that Nicola and Wendy read for us, are essentially telling us that God has unconditionally loved us in Christ. And while it's true that God loves everyone in, in, in the world enough to send his son for us all, God particularly loves those of us who have chosen to acknowledge our sin and trust in Jesus. That as we are forgiven and adopted as his children and brought into his church, he now places his eternal and unconditional love on us. And it's not because we're worthy, it's because Christ is worthy. And so regardless of your performance, regardless of whether I measure up today or not, he fully loves us. That's the essence of his grace. That's what Ephesians unpacks in the first three chapters, that God loves us in Christ. Then what Paul does is he turns around in the second half of this letter and says, therefore, we're meant to love each other. And what Ephesians 4 to 6 does is it unpacks what it would look like for us to have Christ-like love for others, particularly for God's family, the church, which he spends a lot of chapters 4 and 5 in, and then our families, 
where he jumps in in chapter 5 and chapter 6, talking about husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters. That, that this amazing love that he details in chapters 1 and 3 that God has given to us in Christ, we're now meant to pay that forward into our relationships in chapters 4 and 6, particularly within God's family and our families. There's a little phrase that Paul will use through the second half of Ephesians again and again. It's a little phrase, just as. Just give you three examples. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. See what he's doing? I want you to be people of compassion and kindness and forgiveness. Why? Because that's what Christ has done for us. Or Ephesians 5. Follow God's example, therefore, notice the next phrase, as dearly loved children. And you live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. Or writing to husbands as part of the household codes, he writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what he does again and again in this letter that he writes to this church in Ephesus, having built this beautiful foundation and reminded us again and again and again and again, we are loved in Christ. Then he calls us to pay it forward and to love and be compassionate and be forgiving, just like Jesus we can never pay him back. We can never even attempt to pay back the grace he's given us. But what he asks us to do is pay it forward into the lives of one another and the lives of those closest to us. That's how the book of Ephesians works. And the way those two pieces go together is there's this beautiful little, what I call the hinge, the opening paragraph of Ephesians 4 becomes the, the hinge that pulls the door frame and the door together. And so for just a couple of minutes, I want to look at this hinge with you. So if you've got a Bible, just open up to Ephesians 4 or open your phone and pull your app out if you'd like to. But I just really quickly in a few minutes want to look at this hinge passage together where Paul will tell us to live a life worthy of of this amazing calling that we've received. In other words, he calls us to, as John did, to live a life of love because we are so deeply loved in Christ. In this hinge passage then, Pete, uh, sorry, Paul does three things. First of all, he tells us what he wants us to do. That's in verse 1. Ephesians 4 verse 1 reads like this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So as he hits this hinge, as he moves in this letter, this pivotal point from describing God's incredible love for us in Jesus to now say, so here's how I want you to live. Live a life of love, love just as Jesus has loved you. That's his calling. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
Literally what Paul actually wrote in the Greek text, it doesn't come out in most of our English translations or other translations if you use a different language, but he said, live a life worthy of the calling to which you were called. So he uses the word calling twice. And he's using that in a particular way. I didn't realize this before, but often we go rushing past these things and we presume he's just saying, hey, live a life worthy of this love that he's given. But he's saying, live a life worthy of, of this calling that you've been called to. And so you're actually meant to step back and say, well, hold on, what is the calling he's talking about? What have I been called to? And so you go back again into Ephesians 1 to 3, where we started this morning, and you realize he's called us into a relationship with himself. He's called us as, as sons and daughters because he's adopted us in Jesus. But then you get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you find in particular, he hasn't just called us into a relationship with him, he's called us into, into the church. He's called us into his family. Because God isn't just in the business of saving sinners. He's in the business of saving sinners and pulling them together into a brand new community called the church. That the way he describes it in Ephesians 2, he says that, that God has broken down the dividing wall that in the context of Ephesians 2 divided Jews and Gentiles, and he's broken the wall down, and he's pulled us together and created, in his words, in Paul's words, in, John, uh, sorry, in Ephesians 2.15, he's created one new humanity. In other words, it's like he's, he's created a whole new human race. And he's, he's cut down, he's taken away the walls that divide us, and he's brought us together. And the calling that we're meant to live up to is the calling to be his church. Not just to be an individual follower of Jesus, but to be a member of his church, his new humanity. He's knocked down the barriers between Jew and Gentile. He's knocked down the barriers between Maori and Pākehā. He's knocked down the barriers between Arab and South African and Malaysian and English, and keep going through all of the nationalities of the world. He has knocked down the barriers that divide us from each other in the human race. And he has created a new human race called the church. And he's bound us together. And what Paul goes on then to say in words that, that Nicola and Wendy have already read to us, but I want us to see this again, his intent, Ephesians 3, was that now through the church, the manifold, which means the multifaceted wisdom of God, would be on display for the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. See, what God has done is not just saved you and me. He's pulled us together into a multifaceted, multi-ethnic entity called his church, his family. And he's knocked down the dividing walls between us. And he's united us as brothers and sisters. I love the way that in the last 10 days, our country has talked about ourselves as brothers and sisters and talked about reaching out to our Muslim neighbours as brothers and sisters. And that's true in a sense that we share a common humanity. But that is much more true in the church. Where he's knocked down the things that divide us. And he's united us in Jesus. And when Paul then writes in chapter 4, verse 1, and says, live a life worthy of your calling, 
He's talking about our calling to be the church, to unite together without barriers, without walls, and be this multi-ethnic, multifaceted, beautiful church that displays the multifaceted wisdom of God. That means, and I want to stress this in light of Christchurch, white supremacy is evil and sinful and has no place in the church of God. And anti-Semitism is evil and sinful and has no place in the church of God. And racism is evil and sinful and has no place in the church of God. Because what God is doing is actually doing in his church what the wider world would love to see happen through the United Nations and other entities. He's binding us together. And what joins us in common, whether we're Samoan or South African or English or Ethiopian or Malaysian or from Myanmar or Kiwi of whatever stripe that is, he's uniting us together in his church. That's why I love the way, by the way, that our church has become so much more multi-ethnic in these last few years. I love that. I think that's beautiful. Because it's exactly what the church is meant to be. Because one day, we get this picture of heaven. Where John writes in Revelation, I looked and there was this great multitude before me from every nation and tribe and people. And language. In heaven, there's still going to be multiple languages. In heaven, there's still, I think, going to be multiple skin colors. In heaven, there's still going to be multiple ethnicities. But we are going to be perfectly united around the Lamb. Jesus, the one who gave his life for us. And so when Paul writes here and says in chapter 4, verse 1, live a life worthy of the calling to which you were called, he's saying you are part of this precious thing that God is doing in the world, which is building his church. So play your part and work hard to live out this call. Down in verses 4 to 6, then he tells us why we're to do that. Oh, I love this, by the way. Love this passage from um, this uh, quote. Pastor Dan Kimball wrote a cool book, I Love Jesus But Not the Church. Dan Kimball writes this, Jesus loves the church. Yes, the church is imperfect and we have made many mistakes. But if we love Jesus, then we will love what Jesus loves. There is an increasing trend today for Christians to check out of church. There is a growing number of people in Western countries, especially including New Zealand, a growing number of unchurched Christians. That's a biblical anomaly. The Bible doesn't get that. That, That's not a category as far as Scripture is concerned. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you are meant to be deeply connected to the church in general, but to a church and an expression of that in particular. And the idea that that you are a follower of Jesus but not connected to a local church, the Apostle Paul would look at you with a weird expression. Say, what do you mean? Jesus loves his church. And if you're my follower, 
You're meant to love my church too. If someone meets me and says, man, I, I, I like you, but I don't particularly like your bride, I'd punch them in the head. <laughs> Generally, it's the other way around. Rochelle, I really like you, but your husband, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> if we love Jesus, then we're to love his bride. And we're to love his church and be committed to it. Why? Down in uh, verses 4 to 6. Look at the reason that he gives. It's beautiful. Why should we do this? Why should we live out our calling to love his church? Because he says in verse 4, there is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a common word there. Did you catch it? It's not a trick question. It's the word one. One. In other words, what Paul is saying is he's not calling us to create unity in the church. What he's saying is Jesus has created unity. Jesus has knocked down the walls. Jesus has brought us together. He's bound us together by his spirit into his family called the church. So we are to do everything we can to make the church stay as beautiful as Jesus intended. We don't have to make the church beautiful. We just simply have to maintain the unity he has already given to us. He says there's, there's one body, the church. There's one spirit that indwells each of us and makes us a temple where we together honour and worship God. There's one hope that we're all looking forward to of spending eternity with Jesus. There's one Lord that we bow down before, Jesus the Messiah, the King of Kings. There is one faith that we share, the core that we all believe as his followers. There's one baptism that unites all of us, symbolizing for all of us our faith in that Lord, and there is one God and one Father over us all. We don't create unity. The unity is there. He says, maintain the unity that Jesus has won for you. Because we're the church. How we're to do that is then found in verses 2 to 3. So I've kind of jumped them and now coming back. So what we're commanded to do is to walk worthy of this calling to be his church. Why we're to do that is because he's united us together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. How do we do that? Verses 2 and 3. is by being completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's how we're to do it. We're to pay forward the amazing, tremendous love of God. This is what it means to live a life worthy of his calling as part of his church. It means we, we live a life of humility instead of self-centeredness. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, demeaning yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Because you're other-centered. To live a life worthy of this calling to be the church is to increasingly be people of gentleness. Where we're not insensitive to others, we don't just rattle off at the mouth and say dumb things, we're instead gentle and we're we're aware of who else is in the room and how our words could impact 
even, um, even not intending to others around us. To live the life worthy of this calling to be the church means that we become people more and more of patience instead of irritation. I find this one so hard. I'm naturally impatient. But to live out the calling to be part of this church means I learn to be more patient with others. Not to get irritated, not to get annoyed, but to slow the pace of my life to fit the pace of someone I'm walking with. It means to be people of graciousness. Paul says to bear with each other in love. Rather than being tolerant of each other, rather than being annoyed by each other, by all of those little weird kind of gnats of our personality, just bear with each other. Take the grace that God has given you and extend that grace to the people you rub shoulders with. To live a life worthy of the calling means to work hard at this, to live a life of diligence instead of just to, to drift as a church and coast as a church and forget about each other, but to work hard in the way we love each other. These verses, by the way, verses 2 and 3, were also read at the wedding yesterday when Cassie got married to Lloyd. Her three uh, beautiful daughters were her bridesmaids, and in their speech at the reception, Camilla, uh, Cassie's middle daughter, read, read these words, verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4, as advice to her mum and her mum's new husband. She's bang on, because this is the life we to live in God's family and in our family. This is the life we're to live to pay God's love for us and Christ forward into the lives of those around us. So this is the question for us today. To what extent am I allowing God's unconditional love for me to impact my relationships with others, especially within God's family and within my family? I want to invite you as we finish this morning to have a look at that list again. When I was in preaching class in seminary, one of the things we got taught to do in one of the classes was to think about who was listening to a message. Think about who was in the congregation. And they encouraged us to come up with like a mental grid of, of different people in, in, in the, the audience, in the congregation. So think about who's sitting there in terms of different age groups and, and different genders. Think about people in, in terms of different socioeconomic levels. Or, or think about people in different careers or, or work kind of places. Different education levels. They gave us a whole list of things and said, make an imaginary grid. Are you, are you speaking to, to that person and to this person and to this person? There's something quite powerful about that. And so I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want to invite you to make a grid in your own mind. You don't have to write it down, but just do this mentally. And think through this, this, this list of, of five qualities. By the way, this looks very much like the fruit of the Spirit from a few weeks ago, doesn't it? See, this is the Christ-like character. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the Christ-like character that the Spirit is, is producing in us, and as we walk with him, then he's producing this in us. Well, now we're talking about how this same fruit now expresses itself in the way we, we walk with each other, and we serve each other, and we do life together. So take these traits and think about the people in your life. Make yourself a grid. For those of you who are married, uh, think about your spouse. 
Think about those traits. Humility. I think about my spouse more than myself. Patience. I don't get irritated with my spouse. Diligence. I'm working at this relationship to make it better. Think about your small group or the people you hang out with most within our church family. What does it look like to be gentle with people in my my small group? What does it look like uh, to be gracious with the people I hang out with? Maybe think about that one person in your group or circle that particularly annoys you. And admit it, we all have them. What does it look like to be patient and gracious with them? For those of us who are parents, what does it look like for us to to be humble with our kids, gentle with our kids, patient with our kids? And let me flip that, teenagers and young adults, what does it look like for you to put parents in your grid? What does it look like for you as a follower of Jesus? I'm looking at you at the back corner. What does it look like for you as a follower of Jesus to be patient with your parents, to be gracious towards your parents? What about friends? And we can widen this out. What about work colleagues? What about members of sports teams we're in? And so on. It begins with God's family and our family, but it grows outwardly as we take God's love for us in Christ and we multiply it out. We pay it forward. And I'll invite you just for a minute to look at the grid and think about the key relationships in your life and to ask God, where do I need to grow? What's one relationship where, where I need to do better? To live out the calling that you have placed in my life as a follower of Jesus and a member of your multifaceted church. Because that's what we're called to do. To what extent do I allow God's unconditional love for me to impact my relationships with others, especially within God's family and my family? We are deeply loved in Christ. Therefore, Let us deeply love one another. Jesus, we want to say thank you today for this deep and rich and unconditional love you have for us. Thank you that when we choose to acknowledge our sin and trust in you, you welcome us in just as we are. You bring us into your family. Adopt us as daughters of God and sons of God. You welcome us as our brother. But you also bring us into this church, this amazing new humanity where you've broken down barriers and welcomed us in and we are now brothers and sisters together. Thank you for your love. Help us to comprehend it and help us to receive it and help us to understand it more and more. And then, Lord Jesus, would you help us to pay it forward, especially within the church widely, especially within this church family, and especially within our own families and flats 
and homes. Help us to take your incredible love and allow it to change and mature how we love each other. We pray this in your name. Let's stand together.